0: This is the Hymn Publications podcast, I'm Chad Harrington. Today's podcast is the last episode in our mini-series on spiritual formation. It was a class that I taught in person at Harpeth Christian Church. I speak in this episode on the spiritual disciplines of service, submission, and confession. You know, lighthearted issues. So how are all these connected? They converge based on their connection with humility. Humble people serve and submit. They also confess when they've done wrong. So as we seek to become like Jesus, these practices not only display humility, but they also cultivate humility as God works in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure in these ways. I think we're decent at serving those near us. But what about the poor? Let's talk about finding Christ among the poor by looking at Matthew 25 and discussing what it looks like, especially... For Americans today, we're called to submit, to even obey those in authority. What authorities, though, in Scripture are we supposed to obey? And what does it look like to submit to them according to biblical teaching? And then confession. Confession to God is assumed. I mean, we confess Christ and we confess our sins to God. But what about confessing our sins to one another? Learn about what the grace of God poured out through the spiritual discipline of confession looks like as we anchor our understanding of confession in James 5, in 1 John 1. And by the way, you can access the notes and the worksheets mentioned in this session by contacting us at hymnpublications.com about. Here's the session. So this is class eight and we're talking about service, submission, and confession. And it's like, what ties those together? Why did I pick those? And it's one thing, it's humility. You know, Jesus said, come to me All who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, and he said, I am humble in heart. And so, as disciples of Jesus, one of the things we learn is a humble heart. He says, Come and learn from me. And one of the things we learn is how to have a humble heart. In fact, One of the most vital characteristics of being a disciple is humility, second only to love. In fact, Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Blessing of Humility, counted, and this is a new book, um, he counted 50 times that love is mentioned in the New Testament in terms of a command, humility 40 times. So humility is really important. Plus, humility supports becoming a loving person. It's like, how are you gonna be in a loving relationship if you're not humble? That's gonna be really hard. Uh, It's not gonna make it very fun. And the truth is, is it's really hard to follow Jesus, period, if you're not humble. Humility implies a willingness to come under somebody. So, So I think we can clearly see that humility is important, right? The question becomes, how do we cultivate humility? And I think, number one, it's coming alongside Jesus, walking with him, and learning from him. But practically, what does this look like? In other words, how will you recognize that you're actually doing it? Um, I think one of the things we're doing in this class is taking away the mystery of spiritual formation and saying, hey, it's actually kind of like a lot of other things we do in life. It makes sense, and we can have a plan. Um, the missing ingredient ingredient of spiritual formation versus the way the world does any sort of development is God himself, right? But it doesn't mean it doesn't look like other things. Those are actually a shadow of what we do with God. And so there's, there's some core things that we do as humble people, and they also make us more humble. And so I'm going to write these on the board. Um, I'm gonna call this practices of humility. And so we see service, submission, confession, and listening. And the beautiful thing is is that, like I was saying, these are things that we can recognize in a humble person, right? Someone who's humble serves, they submit to authority and leaders, they confess when they've done something wrong, and they listen. We know the opposite of it. it, looks just like pride. Someone doesn't listen, they never admit they're wrong, They'll never submit to anyone's leadership, and they're really selfish, so they never serve anybody, right? That's a proud person, so the opposite is true. You know, and the beautiful thing is that they're predictable, but the unfortunate thing is that they're painful. I remember I used to set up this sound equipment for our church every Sunday. I would show up at 7 a.m. every Sunday, and uh, and one of the guys that I interacted with a lot during that season of my life, it was high school, um, was Keith Anderson and he would play piano and sometimes lead worship. And I remember I was wrestling in high school with what is humility? Like literally, I don't even understand it. And so I asked him about it. And I said, I kind of said like, how do you become humble? And he, he just said a simple answer. He said, through humiliation. And if you think about the incarnation of Christ, some people actually call it the humiliation of Christ. You know, when he was nailed on a cross, that was humiliating. Well, that wasn't new to him. The fact that he condescended, in a sense, into flesh was his humiliation. In other words, it was his humbling process. And, the, and I thought that was really profound by Keith to say that. It's like, well, how do you become humble? <laughs> You're humbled, kind of thing. It's called the school of Christ. And, and it happens to everyone who's willing to follow Jesus And it's like what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. And this is just a great quote. On page 131, he says... Let's see, where is it? I'll just read it from my notes here. He says, Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. So this is a parallel to humility. It's like, okay, kind of think about what he's saying about love with humility. As soon as you do this, love your neighbor we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. And if you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. I think it's the same thing with humility. If we act as humble people by God's grace and through the means of grace, we will actually become humble people. It's almost like self-inflicted humiliation. I know this sounds terrible. Everyone's like got these triggers going up, but you know, I'm I'm using language to just help us understand what this really looks like, okay? And so what's kind of cool is how these fit together. It's like, are these all there are, you know, with regard to practices of humility? And I want to make an argument that these are the, sort of the core actions because, um, because they they constitute action and word. So if you think about it, humble action is proactively serving, right? But kind of on, on the negative sense, humble action submits. You allow someone to have authority over you. In humble speech, we proactively confess, but we receive words. So it sort of comes... Uh, brings together the totality of what we do. There's nothing uh, externally that we do besides speech and action. And so these are sort of the the pillars. It's the four legs of the stool. Um, However, we are going to focus on just the first three today. I do have a worksheet for all four um, that you can do, but I want to focus on the first three Um, So let's start by talking about the importance of service and what this looks like in our lives. Does that sound good? I just want to say this. I think it's really, in some ways, kind of easy to serve the people close to us, isn't it? You know, brownie points with the spouse. It's like, I get an immediate reward. It's like, thank you. Or, you know, well, depending on your relationship with your spouse, (laughs) there may be no reward there. But um, generally speaking like we can kind of see those results. It's also easy, right? You live with the people or you go to church with the people or you're friends with the people. It's like, oh, let me get that plate for you. You know, it's kind of easy. What's hard is serving people that we don't know and who are far. Now far, either metaphorically or literally, maybe they're the stranger. It's like, I don't interact with them, but I walk by them every day at work. It's like, Lord, don't call me to that mission field. You know? Uh, I, don't, don't ask me to speak to that person because that'll be weird. Or what do I do? You know, I think there's a lot of challenges here. So I think, you know, I think we should press into, into that dynamic a little bit and say, Okay, Lord, do you have something more for me? You know, service is one of the three S's at many churches like ours who's adopted the simple church model. You know, I think of other churches like Ethos Church in downtown Nashville, Um, and this can be really useful. It's Sunday morning services, small groups, and service. Like, do those three things, that's what we do as a church, essentially. They work out in different ways, like different kinds of groups and and different ways to serve. But it's really important, it's so important that it's one of the three S's at these churches. And I think we do pretty well at serving in programs at churches, generally children's ministry always needs help um, I, in my experience in all the churches I've been in but it's like generally I think we do pretty good at, at helping with programs but I think we struggle to serve those outside the church programs especially the poor and so this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately and it's tough to bring up because it's like well what do we do about it I think the first thing we do is is we listen to God's heart about it you know, and this is a good segue from the last class session, because when we talked about fasting, Isaiah 58 starts talking about all this justice work. And it's like, oh, don't go there. No, I thought we were talking about fasting. How, what? No, I'll just fast alone and not worry about anyone else. And so there was this implicit challenge, I think, to like, what do we do? And then I was meditating on Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 this week. Let, let not the rich boast in his riches let not the wise boast in his wisdom let not the strong boast in his strength but let him who boasts boast in the lord that he knows me that i am one who practices kindness justice and righteousness on earth for in these i delight oh we're getting liberal here talking about justice especially in 2020. It's like, this is the year of confusion about what love is, what justice is. What a great time for us to talk about this. Justice, as God defines it, is very important. And often it looks like knowing and working with and helping the poor. You know, the truth is, I struggle with this myself. You know, for a couple years in my 20s, I ran a tutoring program in West Nashville for refugees. That was like my main job. I didn't do it for the glory, Uh, there was like 20 students, but it was one of the best times of my life because I saw and experienced Christ in the poor. And God did something to change my heart about working with the poor that it hasn't gone away. And I realized God delights in these because God's in them, in these these justice acts, in these people. And when we don't go there, we miss out on Christ in them. And I don't want to miss out anymore. I actually wrote a memoir to myself when I was 25 for my 35-year-old self. I'm 34. And it was that I wouldn't forget about it. I went back and read through it this year. So I'm inviting you to join me in this discussion about this because we can't forget the poor. We just can't. So I want to read Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. To 46. We'll start with the first two-thirds of that. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And then the King will say to those on His right, And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. It's like, okay, man. And what we see is six ways to serve people physically. Now, obviously, there's more ways to serve people than these, but there's something about these. So let's talk. Let's talk about what this means, what it looks like. The first thing I want to say is that it's important to note from verse 40 that these are our brothers and sisters that Jesus is talking about. In other words, the people that we want to look for primarily are actually those in the body of Christ, and that's One of the most miscommon understandings about justice work is that biblically speaking, there's a precedent for seeking those in the family of God who are poor and serving them first. Not only, but first. Because it's like, if you don't take care of your family, (laughs) it's like, why would you neglect your family for the sake of the world? You know, a family of faith is the same. Second In terms of spiritual formation, like I was saying, we experience Christ in these people. (laughs) Say these people, these people might be us one day, if they're not already. He said, you did these things for me. He didn't say you did them for them. And so in a mysterious way, in one sense, we're acting as Christ for Christ. We are the body of Christ for the body of Christ. And I think that's really interesting. The third thing is that he doesn't say, you wrote me a check, and I deposited it. You contributed to a Feed the Hungry nonprofit, and I accepted your donation. He didn't say, you gave me extra money on your church's mercy fund line item. And I was helped by it. He says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. You clothed me. You came and visited me. It's a relational thing that he's talking about. And that's huge. It's huge in our siloed philosophy of functional ministry these days. Where we do our thing we stick to our lane and we do it on our own Jesus says you came to me and that's why I think he can say I never knew you away from me you know like literally we didn't have a relationship in that way you know and that's a different passage but the same principle applies I think some of you are thinking, well, I'm a parent, and so pretty much covers all these categories, right? It's like the naked, the hungry, the thirsty. <laughs> they go to the hospital, and, well, they get sick a lot, right? It's like, covered, <laughs> check. Um, that counts, but in a different way. I'll just put it that way. Um, so, But what I want to say is that I think God wants us to be personally involved with the poor. That's kind of my main point. I really do. And if you're like, well, I don't have time. I don't know them. It's like, yeah, that's why he calls him the stranger. <laughs> right? That's why there's a large group of people, if we continue reading, that say, what? I didn't see you like that? Pick you up in verse 41. He says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry... And you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will answer the Lord, When did we see you hungry and thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I think this can feel really difficult, especially in our context in Middle Tennessee and in Williamson County. Yet the poor are around us if we're willing to look and to seek. But I just wanna say, I think this is difficult. this man named Ash Barker came to Ozark Christian College where I went to school in Joplin, Missouri. My, I think it was my senior year of college. And he was on furlough as a missionary from Bangkok, Thailand, where he literally moved his family into the slums to do ministry among the poor. And he wrote a book about this called Make Poverty Personal, taking the poor as seriously as the Bible does. And I recommend that book and we had the opportunity me and my friends There was like 10 or 15 of us kind of in this group to take him out to lunch one day and just to get to know him better he spoke at a chapel or in a class and so we, we were like let's hang out with this guy because we were learning about for me it was it was the importance of justice for the first time and involvement with the poor and god's heart for that and so we're like oh my goodness this guy's real and he's in he lives in the slums like of thailand let's talk he was so genuine and so inspiring. One of the things he said that I thought was really interesting that I think might be helpful for you is he said proximity matters, right? So he moved into the slums to do ministry. He didn't live on the outside and come in once, once in a while. He lived there. And he said the number of miles, this is a, kind of a simple way to remember it, the number of miles you have to travel to serve people is the, num- the percentage points that you... Um, lose in effectiveness. Just sort of practically and relationally. If you have to drive 30 minutes to visit someone, you lose about 30% effectiveness, kind of relationally. Five minutes, you know, 40 minutes, 50. I thought that was really helpful and I wanted to pass that along to you to just think about, and, and for this reason, who around you is poor? We took a little walk down our street, a little further than our street, and we saw the poor here in Franklin just the other day. The poor are among us. Now, we can go to other places as well, but I think it's, it's helpful to start there. And the poor may be poor in spirit among us, too. I think the sick, the hospitalized, uh, they might have money, but <laughs> they're poor, right? There's more than just material poverty. And I think that's one of the most important things that we in our Western context, specifically in North America, need to grasp the most is that there are, there are a variety of poverties. And so there's a really important book that I want everyone to read at some point. I mean, that's, that's it. I want everyone to read it by Stephen uh, Corbert and Brian Fickert. It's called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. And I think it's essential reading for every Christian in America today. We need to work with the poor and serve the poor, but the problem is, is we're bad at it. And there's really clear reasons why we're bad at it, but they have a great biblically-based solution and sort of diagnosis. It was incredibly helpful when I read it in my uh, mid-20s when I started working with the poor. But I do wanna say this, I struggle with this. You know, I've got great stories in my life and I think these stories are really important and helpful for as I think about regrouping now that I've sort of settled down into the family life. (laughs) I remember my college years, uh, specifically my senior year. I felt like the Lord wanted me to go to a nursing home and spend time with the lonely, those maybe they were sick or needing to be cared for. And so I just, I think I heard about a certain nursing home because one of my professor's moms was living there and so I just got in my car and went there. The fun, I remember it like it was yesterday. I started pulling out of my college like, parking lot, and I was like backing up. And I literally pulled back in. I was like, I can't do this. What am I doing? Like I don't know. How am I going to do this? I'm going to look. Like, But I was like, I'm just going to go. And every Saturday, I think it was just a semester, every Saturday, spent time with David and others at, at mealtime. And, man, they loved it. And I tried to focus on, on getting to know people, but I remember David. And as graduation came, my senior year, I came back there with my family, uh, which was kind of funny, because like who? I wasn't relatives with anyone. But my grandfather had had a stroke, and I think in some ways it was my way of reaching out to his demographic, even though we were in different states. And David pulled me aside, just me and him at his table, my family was somewhere else at that point. And he said, you have no idea what you mean to us. And I was like, I just come on Saturdays for a meal. But I remember that because it was a small thing I did. I really cared for them. I listened to them and they got lots to share at that age. But what a beautiful story of seeing Christ and being Christ for the poor. I do remember working with refugees in the tutoring program and how I felt like I was walking on cloud nine. Is that a conflation of analogies? Walking on sunshine, being on cloud nine, whatever. (laughs) It was so rich. Spending time with the, and there's people who are materially poor are so humble, it's refreshing. You know what happens? God changes us in it. And so here's what I want to say. I want to say, start with one thing in one season of your life at a time. If you're convicted, and there's a worksheet to help you process some of this that I've created for you. So you can sort of think through this. But think about starting with just one thing that you can do. It's like, man, I feel overwhelmed by all that. I can't like save the world. And that's right. We can't save the world. I don't think Jesus is like, you constantly did all of these things for me. I think these, these people, the sheep, were characterized by being these kinds of persons. So I just want to say, let's start with one person in one context. Start there. That's doable and commit to it for a certain number of months, maybe even a year. Because the truth is, as I did work with refugees, I saw the people who would come in and do like a service day. Like they did their you know their project for the year. <laughs> Those were the most annoying. They, they were a burden, and they hurt people more than they helped people. And that's what Brian Fekert writes about. So we've really got to think through this and not have the, the Messiah complex of, I'm going to come in and help you, you know. <laughs> they don't need that. We need relationships. We all do. And so the benefits are that if you do it for, let's say, a year, six months, it's really hard to be selfish for that long, <laughs> you know. Like, that, that's going to be worked out of you if you keep going with it. Also, people will see your commitment. And you'll see the relationships grow and magic will happen. It'll feel like magic. But really, it's God's Spirit at work because Jeremiah 9 24 says, In these I delight. And His delight becomes our delight when we do them and join Him. He says, On earth. And so start with that service worksheet that I created. Um, it's not mandatory, but I. I just wanted to give you a tool so you can really process this and get a plan. And I'll just say this, as you do this, take someone with you. I remember taking Kevin Banks with me to set up a Christmas tree with a refugee family. I remember taking Kevin also with me, he was my roommate at the time, to the prison. Riverbend Maximum Security in West Nashville. Guess who kept going to the prison when I moved to Kentucky to finish my degree? These relationships change us. Obviously there's more ways to do it, but but let's let's listen to Jesus' heart there and start with these. So that's service. That's sort of the physical, the practical. I wanna talk about sort of the other side of humble action, which is submission. It's like, no one really likes to hear, hear the word submit, right? It's like, I no one wants to, like, submit, you know? But let's talk about the importance of authority first, and then we'll get to submission. And so it starts with this, God has all authority. The other part of it is, he invites people into it. We see this as early as Genesis chapter one, verse 28. He put people in charge of creation. He says, rule over the birds of the sky and the plants and the animals and the fish of the sea. And it's like, wow, I don't even know how to rule over birds. But that's, (laughs) you know, God commands this rule over. Well, he's giving authority to do that. But we also see this at the very end of the Bible, too. Revelation chapter 22, verses 4 and 5. And it says, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will, need no, uh, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Who reigns? It's people with authority people with power. That's who reigns. We will reign with God in the end, but we also reign with God in a, sen- in a limited sense now based on the authority that he delegates. And Jesus has this authority and he displays this. It says in Mark 1 22, that people said he spoke with authority. In Luke 7 8, you know, we know that the centurion said to Jesus, I'm a man who has authority. I say to my servant, go here. And he goes there, go there. And he goes there. He goes, I know that if you just say the word. Then my servant will be healed. He knew Jesus had authority. (laughs) In Luke 10, 17, his disciples said. After their short little missionary jaunt. They said, the demons, the demons even submit to us in your name. And it's like, oh your name has power. And they were excited about it. And Jesus like, look, hold on. It's like, calm down a little bit. You know, don't rejoice about that. Rejoice the fact that your name is written in the book of life. But it's like, but yeah, you do have power in me. It's like, wow. It's like little kids, you know, getting choices for the first time. They get really excited. And by the way, a really great study is to read Matthew chapter 4 through 9 and just ask the question, uh, what does it look like that Jesus has all authority um, over the cosmos? Matthew 4 to 9. It's a fun study. And so what I want to do is, uh, and I'm going to erase this, but what I want to do is talk about the different authorities in the world and what it looks like to submit to them. Because in Scripture, it's clear Authority and submission to authority is a clear command. And we need to do this if we're going to be disciples of Jesus. So I'm going to call these seven authorities. The first one is God himself. And so I'm going to give you a scripture that goes with each of these. That's a clear, it's not the only one, but it'll be a clear command to submit to these authorities. The first one is James chapter four, verse seven. It says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourself to God. I mean, it, it really is kind of simple. And this is primary and first in discipleship. Because we have to submit to God in order for the rest to fall in place. Because the rest of the authority authorities gain power from God. So if we're not submissive to God himself, then the whole thing kind of falls apart. And so... You know, we'll look at the authority in all of life, but I think it's important that we start with knowing and, and submitting ourselves to God. Another passage um, that sort of paints this picture, it sort of it says, "Okay, let's talk about all the authorities." It says in First Peter two thirteen, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, and then Peter goes on in First Peter for the rest of the letter, really. And talks about submission to the government in work situations, you know, for them it was slavery. Family relationships, church relationships, and even elders. First Peter's like a manual of authority and submission. <laughs> and so let's, let's kind of talk about these one at a time. We'll talk about Church leaders, first. in Hebrews 13:17, it says, "Obey your leaders and submit to them, and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. You know, I think it's really strong language. obey your leaders and submit to them. That's really clear, but really neglected in the church today. I mean, Gary, I can see you just nodding your head as an elder of our church. This is so important for us to grasp and to take hold of. And that's why I want to anchor it in Scripture. It's very clear. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. So what does this mean, you know? Well, I just want to say it's like we have a lot of um, responsibility in a sense to make their work a delight, not a drag, you know, a blessing instead of a burden. Um, and I think that this is really important, especially in 2020, because there's so many people who are struggling in the pandemic to submit to church authority and leaders. And so let's, let's talk about it. What does it look like? The first thing it looks like. And by the way, this is fun for me because I'm not on staff at a church. So it's fun for me to be able to say this and not be like, submit, <laughs> submit to me or something. Um, that'd be kind of weird if, if anyone did that. <laughs> but here's, here's what it looks like. The first thing is we simply do what they ask us to do. Like literally when they ask us to do something, we do it. Gary's asked me multiple times to help set up the chairs and, or the tables for an event And I try when it's, when I can to just do it simply because of his authority as an elder. Like, obviously I might do it otherwise, but when he emails me with that request, it's like, like, wow, one of the people in authority over me is asking me to do something. I'm going to try and do it. Uh, I'm not able to do it every time, but it's like, it holds weight. You know, our leaders ask us to go to church. They expect us to go to church because it's good for us, right? So we should go to church all the time, every week. I mean, if you get sick, yeah, but, or if you can't come for some reason. But if it's like, yeah, my family's in town, and we wanted to go to Cracker Barrel, it's like, no, dude, that's not how it works. That's the American life, not the life in Christ. You know, it's, it's like, Cracker Barrel's fine, but go on Saturday. Like, go after church, or The titans are not that important in your life. Your spiritual health, vitality, and the health of your church is way more important. And and the truth is, it is a burden to walk into an empty church building because it's a football Sunday. That's not fun. It's not a delight. We have a responsibility to help and to be the kinds of people who submit and obey. Um, Be in a small group since they ask us to do that. It's like, if you're not in a small group, the church is very clear. It's like, Sunday, small group service. <laughs> really, really not asking you a whole lot. Uh, you might be rebelling if you're not doing these things. You might actually be rebelling. And, and then there's small things too. Like they ask us every Sunday to fill out, and this is something our worship leader does, to fill out the prayer connect card. Literally, they ask you to do it. Did you know that? Did you know that they're literally asking you to do something? And when you don't do it, it sure appears rebellious. And if you ask the leaders at our church, do you want everyone to do it? They would say, yes, that'd be great. So it's listening to the heart of leaders, too. Not just, well, I mean, they're literally asking you. But it's like, these kinds of things are all around if if you're really listening and you're really trying to follow Jesus in these. You know, another thing they ask us to do is come to church-wide events. Well, I've got other plans. My show's on that night. Or that's my alone time, my only alone time all week. It's like, okay, do you think the Lord can fill you up the same way he does in your alone time? But because the church asks you to do something that's good for you and other people, it's not just about you, I think the answer can be yes. And so, you know, the most basic sense is listen to what they ask for literally and do it. But also I'll say this, do what's in their vision, even if they don't say it, capture their vision and try and follow that. Um, In other words, don't just obey their words, but live into the heart of what they're saying. So small group leaders, if you know the heart of the delegated authority, God's put in the leaders of your church that they've sort of released you to do. If you're a small group leader, They want you to care for your small group. So care for them. Reach out to them. Ask them how they're doing. They long for you to submit to their equipping of you. And they're releasing you to care for that small group. Elders can't care for everybody really personally. They ask us to join with them. They equip us for that. I would say also serve in a ministry to support diff- their vision. And, and this is where your gifts come in. You know, we've got, you know, CR and there's a lot of different ministries, worship ministry. These are your giftings. That, that's great. That's a way, that's actually a way of, of obeying and, and submitting to our leaders. You know, I remember um, I was in Kentucky talking with a pastor while I was in seminary. And this was my late 20s. And I was talking to a man named Joseph Hagan. And I told him, we were just talking uh, about life and church, and I was like, yeah, I was a really compliant kid. Like, I I did everything my parents wanted. Like, it wasn't even a problem for me. And he said, you're the kind of kid we're the most worried about. Like, when we see kids who are extremely compliant, he's like, those are the ones that we're the most worried about. Because outwardly, they're submissive. But ain't nobody like that in reality. (laughs) Inwardly, they can become ferocious wolves. For whatever reason, we we can have really compliant kids. We might be that person. So I think the same thing can be true when we're adults. There's a heart aspect to it. And scripture talks about serving wholeheartedly, right? I don't think that's just in the work context. I think that's how we live our lives. So the third thing is... is as we follow church leaders, and I'm focusing a lot on this one. I'm not going to focus as much on all the others. But I think this is just so important. The third thing is follow them to your hurt. I don't mean like <laughs> lashes, and, <laughs> but sometimes it's going to be painful. Go into that. In other words, don't follow only when it's easy. Obey and submit even when you don't agree. There's one even when it's not convenient. Like not going on another vacation this year because, or maybe not this year, but on a regular year because you need to care for the people in your small group or because you'll miss an important ministry opportunity at the church. Like, have you ever actually turned those things down? That's It's hurtful, you know, in a sense because it's like, I really wanted to do that. It's like, was my fall break? Even to your hurt. Even if it takes away from your agenda, what you would choose. We're following Jesus, not ourselves, right? You know, in a sense, we often let church form around our schedules. Well, well, that doesn't work for my schedule, right? It's like, well, I can't come to that or I can't do that. What if we let our schedules form around what God is doing in the church? Because the kingdom of God is taking over the world for those who are willing to receive it. And it happens primarily through the church, the people of God. That's the focus of God's reign as Jesus has designated it. So why would we do this? Why would we want to be people who submit? Because number one, it's a joy for them. But number two, it's good for us. That's what it says in the scripture. In Hebrews 13, there's a certain blessing that comes from submitting to leaders that you don't get anywhere else. (laughs) And it's a double whammy, I guess a double blessing when your dad's the pastor because he's your dad with authority and then he's your pastor with authority. And uh, I just want to say that I've learned this the hard way. Both the pain of being compliant, coming out of that into reality, and then learning again to submit. It's hard, but it's so good, so much better. So that's church leaders. I also want to say believers in general were called to submit in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I mean, that's pretty simple, right? It's really clear. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is called mutual submission. And while God gives some of us authority to lead, we all submit to each other in another sense because the truth is the ground, the foot of the cross is level. We're all together. So we, we submit to one another. You know where the ground is also level? at the foot of a table at which we all sit and come to the Lord's table and fellowship together. And so what does this look like? You know, I think it looks like listening to each other. (laughs) If people you're in fellowship with have something to say to you, maybe it's not always easy. I think we need to listen to it. You know, being corrected by each other. Maybe it's sin or it's just Correction. Where it's not this big bad thing to be corrected by each other. I mean, think about the workplace. If you make a mistake, your boss is probably going to correct you, right? I think we should be used to um, being corrected, rebuked, rebuked, and trained in righteousness so that we'll be thoroughly equipped for every good work, like 2 Peter 3 16, 17 talks about. It's like, well, who's going to do the correcting? teaching and rebuking and training and righteousness. The people of God, we need to submit to it. Why? Because it's good. We need it. The straight and narrow is not arbitrary. It's because guess what's on the other sides? Chasms and pits and thorns. Like, we need help on our journey. And how does that come? Think about, you know, mountain climbing or being on a, a big trip. If someone asks you to do something like, quick, hand me this, or I need water, or I need... It's like, go on ahead. We're submitting to each other because we're all in a team. That's how teams work. Um, I think it's also encouraging each other, too. Receiving encouragement when you're down. Being open with people. I think it also looks like mutual deference in the body. You know, in other words, we might have preferences but we go with other people's preferences. We defer to them out of reverence for Christ. So these are some of the ways that, that I've seen um, mutual submission to other believers work itself out. I think also our spouses, and this is number four, we need to submit to our spouse. In Ephesians five, twenty-two to 25, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is savior now as the church submits to christ so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything husbands love your wives just as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word so that's ephesians 5:22 to 25 the first thing i want to say about this is that i don't know anything about marriage and what we'll see, parenting, except for what I've observed in other godly people, discerned in the Lord, and seen others done well. Okay, so I don't know anything about these, right, except for those. But I do want to say this, when it comes to submission to your spouse, that this is a reversal of the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, it talks about how God, you know, and it uses the word curse, curses the woman Eve and says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you desire is in this context means to sort of control to master and so a woman's desire in a marriage relationship will be to sort of manipulate the her husband but he's going to rule over her so it's kind of this thing you ever experienced that in your in your marriage where it's like power struggle right goes back to the curse And the problem is, is that there is actually authority in the home. And in Christ, authority is laid down to serve. So the husband submits by service through loving his wife. And the wife submits to his leadership. In other words, there's roles, but in Christ, The curse is reversed. So instead of trying to come over each other and dominate one another, we come under one another by submission and service. It's a reversal of the fall. And I think that that's beautiful. So what does this look like? I think it looks like many things, and but I want to give you sort of a paradigm to think about this and to practice this in your home. And this is something that my wife and I do. Um, It's called first-time obedience. Normally, we think about this in parenting, or maybe we haven't, but first-time obedience is when someone makes an ask, or in parenting, it would be telling them to, the kids to do something, but in marriage, it would be asking them to do something, making a request, and it's to do it the first time without delay. This is an interesting paradigm shift, I think, it could be. It's a challenge. In other words, when your spouse asks you to do something, do it the first time, Why? Because they're your spouse and they ask you to do something. And that's the best way to serve is to not delay. It's things like, honey, take out the trash, would you? It's like, well, yeah, that's that's what I'm supposed to do or it's my day to do that. Honey, would you follow me in this? I don't agree or I don't want to do it. Well, again, you you don't have to agree to, to come under someone's authority. You don't have to want to serve to do it. So it's, it's kind of taking your opinions, and I've got a lot of them, and putting them to the side, taking your preferences and putting them to the side, and doing it the first time. And this is great practice for obeying the Lord. And it's great for setting the tone in your home for first-time obedience with your kids. If you and your spouse are obe- obeying each other the first time, it's going to set a family culture that makes it way easier for kids to do that. And for you to expect them to do that. So in Ephesians 6, 1. In Ephesians 6, 1, we have a clear command. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You know, we're called to obey our parents. I want to say this. Even as adults, there's a sense in which we need to obey our parents. Now, it doesn't mean in the same way. It more means to honor them. Um, and and we still do what they ask. You know, more. it's like when... when someone with authority in the church asks you to do something, it carries weight. It's like if you're able to do what they ask um, and it's reasonable, then you should do it. You know, and then for kids, we train our kids in first-time obedience. Um, We expect that because that's what the Lord expects of us. When he asks us to do something, we do it. And so I think the first thing this means is we actually instruct our kids to do stuff. I think there's... A little coyness these days in parenting circles of just invite your kids, see what they want to do. Like learn their preferences. And it's like, yeah, I think that's true. And there's a time and a place for that. But it's like, tell them what to do. They need to know your authority. Our number one goal for Emma's second year of life was that she would know that we are in control. Why? Because it's really good that she's not in control. And it's also safe for her. And if we train them to do this, they will more easily obey the Lord with first-time obedience because they're used to it. I think of Eli and Samuel. The boy Samuel got up in the middle of the night three times because he thought he heard Eli. No, it was the Lord, but you see that transference of of first-time obedience right there in 1 Samuel. That's really cool. So let's train our kids with first-time obedience. And then, and then we, can look at, we can look at what submission looks like in the workplace. In First Peter two eighteen, it says, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. It's like, is that in the Bible? Yeah, it is. All right. <laughs> then in Ephesians 6, 5 to 9, you got Peter and Paul. Maybe Mary's going to say something here, too. Ephesians 6, 5, and 9 through 9 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. (laughs) Serve wholeheartedly. You getting it? (laughs) As if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So in this class context, in this class context, I don't want to get into the parallel between ancient slavery, uh, slave master relationships and, and how that transfers to work relationships. It's kind of a complex argument to go into it fully, so just grant me that today, that there is a parallel. It's not the exact same, but the principle can apply. In other words, what I'm saying is, what Paul and Peter are saying here about the slave-master relationship, I think we can analogously, by principle, apply it to the workplace. (laughs) And for some of us, it doesn't feel like much of an analogy. We feel like slaves with a master. And and that's okay too. In fact, it might help you uh, take this more to heart because it's pretty intense language. It's a high bar. And I think the most important thing here is that we come under their authority over us. So it's called delegated authority. People who run businesses or run organizations, they actually have authority. They may not have been placed there by God, but there's authority in the workplace. And we're called to come under that. So what does this mean for workers? I think it means that we literally and simply do what our boss says. Do what our manager says. Or perhaps you've got clients. (laughs) In one sense, they're your boss. You, You do what they say, even if you would do it a different way. If you've got preferences on how things are to be done, but the word that comes from on high is to do it. It's like, ugh, oh, really another monthly report. You know, and maybe they don't use it. Maybe it's unnecessary. Maybe they do sit in an ivory tower and maybe they don't know how to do what you do. It don't matter. You're working for them. And in a sense, you're working for the Lord. And so do it wholeheartedly. Well, that's pretty much impossible apart from Christ. And that's why we've got good news that it's Jesus sitting on the throne who has all authority. And so when we obey them, we're obeying, in a sense, Christ. It also means that we don't slander or talk bad about those who are in authority over us, even when we disagree. Now, this is, this is a tall order at the water cooler. It means keeping your 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 mouth, a lot. Some places it's going to be easier than others, but I'll tell you, it's real easy to slip that stuff in. And then we do our work as if doing it for God, which means that we do it with excellence. You know, as I was preparing for this class, I was like, why am I working so hard at this class? It's like, and I realized, like, I really think I'm doing this for the Lord. I have him in mind doing it, and, and that's a delight. That's a good thing, um, and this, this isn't perfect, and neither is our, any of our work perfect, but it, it's so fun to do it when we're doing stuff for the Lord. It makes it better, because you're probably not gonna get the credit that you really want, or the affirmation you want from people, so it's okay to receive affirmation and credit from the Lord, and it, we should expect reward. That's actually what it says in the passage. Um, In verse 8, it says, The Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. (laughs) Let's hold on to that in the workplace. It also means that for bosses, there's, um, and this isn't an exact translation, you don't, don't be a, a, don't act like a master of slaves, right? But in fact, that's kind of the point. We should treat our employees well and our third-party service providers well as if they are Christ, as if we're serving the Lord. They're not just people you're using. You know, in a sense, if you've got workers, you're serving them. If you've got 10 workers, you've got 10 bosses now. (laughs) That's one way to think about it. Um, Because we're all working under the master who is the Lord. Okay, the last one is governmental authorities. And yeah, this one's fun. Romans 13one 1-5 says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. And if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Romans 13, 1 to 5. This one is huge, especially right now. What this is saying is that God has established the authority of governments, the organizational structure. But I want to make this clear based on my understanding. He is not saying that God has established specific persons with authority in office at a certain time. I think it's a manipulation of the text to believe that Romans 13 is saying that God puts specific individuals in authority. The meaning of the text as I understand it is that God establishes governmental authority, not authorities in in the sense of individuals. Okay, that's an important difference, especially when you look at history. <laughs> okay. So it's like You know, we submit to governmental authorities in general because God established governance. That's what I believe this is saying. And so we're supposed to submit to them. And I think the only exception is if submitting to them is clearly immoral, not just a preference. It's like, well, I'd like to go really fast on the interstate. Well, yeah. Would you also like to die? Because that could very well happen if you go too fast. It's for our good to submit to things like that. Okay, and so and that's what he says in verse four. It's for your good. I think number two, why submit, is if we disobey, we get the sword. In Rome at the time, the Christians were tempted to rebel against the government. Okay, when you look historically at Romans, um, there was this kind of conflict between this constituent and Paul was basically and the Roman government, and Paul was basically saying, look, hey, don't mess with, don't mess with the government. They have a sword for a reason. And if you break the rules, prepare to face the sword. Translation, check yourself before you wreck yourself. A lot of discussions going on in the world today and on the news are misinformed, disinformed, whatever you want to call it, because they don't understand the gospel that Jesus, the saving King, reigns. And he has dispelled authority. And part of the rebellion happening in our country has to do with the fact that people are rebelling against God. And the governmental authority structure threatens their rebellion. And so I don't think that we can expect the world to submit to the government because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't know that Jesus is on the throne. They think they're on the throne and everyone needs to get under them. And that's how it looks. But we know that humble people submit to the government. So the third reason is because of conscience. I think just it's like you have a clear conscience if you're doing these things. So what does this look like? I think we follow the speed limit, we pay our taxes. We get the proper licenses that we need to practice what we do professionally. I think we don't lie, we don't try and slide under the radar when we're hiding something illegal or immoral with regard to the law. I think we get proper approval and permits it's like, man, if you're a builder, if you're you know, a compliance officer, it's, there's so many legislation and rules. And it's like, you don't need to be a legalist, but you do need to follow the rules. I think it means pulling over when a cop turns the sirens on. That's pretty basic, right? I think we follow police orders even if we think we're innocent. I think we pay the ticket instead of throwing it away. Even if we disagree with the law, we still obey because it's God who has ultimate authority. Jesus said in John 19, verse 11 in the ESV to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. I think it was still just the general authority of being a governor. That seat of authority wouldn't exist. God hadn't given it to you. So... Even Jesus submitted to the governing authorities. To his death. <laughs> All right. I'll do it too. It's like, that makes sense. We really can't say anything else. <laughs> it wasn't just inconvenient. He died because of the government. And he willingly submitted to it in John chapter 19. But here's the cool thing there's unexpected fruit that comes from humble submission. I remember in the seventh grade, I got caught cheating by Mrs. Laney because Russ Runyon gave me his homework and I was sitting there copying it in our free time and I was caught I was like oh how did I get caught because you were being an idiot and she had me call my dad and confess it to him guess who didn't cheat ever again not knowingly at least The point was received. Cool thing about submitting to authorities is that there's no hiding. We live free and with no fear. And I'll tell you what, eighth grade Chad was a happier Chad than cheating on your homework Chad in seventh grade. And that set a tone in my life. It also helped me learn how to confess which is the last thing. I want to talk about confession as we land the plane here. And I think it's really important that we practice confession as people who want to be humble like Jesus. Now, I think the first thing that we can assume is that we confess our sins to God. And so I, that's just assumed, and, but I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on confessing to other people in general. And, I, you know, why is this important? I think it brings healing Number one, in James chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, it says, Is anyone of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him, give songs. Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone sick? He should call on the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins each to each other confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Man, this passage is rich. I just wanted to take two points from it. Number one, confession is important. It's a clear command. Confess your sins to other people. Number two, confession can be a part of physical healing. It gets back to how we've talked about the human person. We have this interrelated dynamism between the parts of our being. I can't really explain it. I don't think modern psychology and psychiatry has done a great job of discipling us in theological psychology, because there's something about spiritual healing that's connected to physical healing. And I think scientists have caught on to that a little bit, about being happy and not being worried. But there's something really deep that we have available through the Holy Spirit of God, which is somehow being cleansed spiritually can lead to physical cleansing. And I don't really understand it, but it's clear in Scripture. And so I'll give you another fun study to do if you want to dig deeper into James 5. Read 1 Kings 17 and Elijah's journey and prayer as a, as a righteous man and how he healed somebody whose mother had sinned. It's a really cool study. So number one is it brings healing. Number two, why confess? Because we can rid sin of its power. Sin grows in the darkness. And number three is when we confess, we can more tangibly experience the grace and mercy of of God to forgive us and still be in the same room as him. (laughs) I remember when I was caught in sin and I got unstuck and then I faced community again. I thought, will they actually accept me back? Because that was awful. What I've done is despicable. Like, will they actually let me back in and accept me? And I recalled at that point, including my family, by the way, and I recall at that point, my dad said when I was just a kid, we're near Fieldstone Farms by the Publix, driving down Fieldstone Parkway, and he said, hey, Chad, I just want you to know, no matter what you ever do, you can always come home. I was like, what am I going to do, Dad? That, like, <laughs> I would feel like I couldn't come home. And that happened, you know, <laughs> And I remembered it, and I thought, if my dad will accept me back, maybe God will too. When we confess our sin, we can experience freedom and grace and the embrace of God like nothing else. And it's one of the beautiful results of the gospel. And it's so freeing and it's so beautiful. So one way that we can experience the grace and mercy of God is to confess our sin. If we hold it back, how are we going to experience forgiveness? And then when we do this, as the person hearing it, we are a part of God's voice in, the, in people's lives. And when we offer that truth of the gospel to someone who doesn't feel worthy and who's caught in sin and confesses, what a vulnerable moment. We are acting with God. It says in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. We know that we can experience the forgiveness of God. And when we confess to others, we can remind We can be reminded of that truth. It's easy to forget. So how do we do this? You know, I think CR does a great job modeling this, especially through sponsorship. And so let's follow their lead and make it more widespread in the church. Confession. So, you know, what does this look like? Confess your sins first to the people that you've hurt, you know. And our family rule of life has this. Be the first to admit mistakes and ask for forgiveness. You know, so build this into your family culture and it makes it easier to do with other people as well. I think number two is confess to God. I, I, we really do need to confess to God as part of the Our Father prayer. Number three, confess to another person. You know, traditionally this person has beca- been called a confessor, someone who receives your confession. Now, I'm not arguing that we, we go into these like dark booths in, in, in ancient churches and someone behind a veil listens to us. But it's like, that's not a terrible thing to do either. <laughs> There's really worse things you can do with your life than confess to a priest, you know. But what if we acted um, as priests for one another, and we heard one another's confessions in Christ? I think that we would be so much better off. So I kind of want to argue for picking a singular person that you'll confess your sins to. I don't think you should confess to everybody, um, and I also want to say that this has been hard for me at times. So what, you know, who is this person? How do we pick someone to be our confessor? And I think that it would be good that we actually pick someone. And we talk to him about it. And we ask them, can you be my priest? Can you be my priestess? You know, can you hear my confessions regularly? Like I said, I, I struggle with this one. Um, at, at times, I have. First, I think this person should and must be a Christian, a psychologist or a counselor who doesn't know God and doesn't work toward this specific end, doesn't work. Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, uh, says it well. He says, the person that receives your confession must live beneath the cross. You know, I think that leads to number two. They need to be someone who's not just a Christian, but who's also humble. Uh, and who knows their sin well. I think number three is someone who's safe and won't share with others what you say. Four, someone who won't try to immediately solve your problem when you confess, but they'll just listen. And if the relationship allows, then, then they might offer a suggestion if prompted and welcomed. I think number five, it's someone who will also confess their sin. Bonhoeffer also writes in Life Together, um, about this, he, he offers basically two dangers in this practice of confession. The first one is is that you'll have one person who hears everyone else's confessions but they don't confess to anybody. Problem. Red flag cult. Yeah, run. If you've got one person who never does anything wrong but everyone else does, run. Number two danger is that when we confess, we think that our piety is what brings healing okay, we've got to remember that even though we confess the people, it's God who forgives, it's God who absolves our sin, and it's God who heals us. And when we turn this into a pious work that we do and forget God's grace in it, it becomes lifeless. In other words, the effectiveness of our confession is based on the promise from God, not based on our piety to God. Confession is a means of God's grace. And we receive it through people, but it's really on behalf of God. And so I'll just give you some advice about this as we close. You know, I think there's a place for both structured and spontaneous confession. You know, so maybe you need to implement a a systematic plan for confession during certain seasons of your life. Maybe for your whole life, but definitely for certain seasons. I remember when I was engaged, it's like, you know, Josh Patrick allowed me to call him on an app called Voxer, you know, and, and to just check in with him about how I was doing with Purity. And so maybe it's a call that you make at a predictable time. Maybe it's a voicemail. Um, I like the Vox app because you can kind of leave a voicemail, but it doesn't ring on your phone. And you can check it time. It's like a walkie talkie that leaves a message. It's pretty cool great tool for discipleship. V-O-X-E-R. And maybe you do it at the same time every week, or maybe you do it at a trigger time. It's like whenever you know you're going to be in that situation that's tempting or you're vulnerable, either before or after, whatever works well, check in with, you know, and see how they call it a sponsor. Check in with your, maybe it's a mentor, maybe it's a disciple maker, maybe it's just a friend. Someone who you have selected who will hear your confession. And then they can speak truth to you. Then you're not in the dark. It's someone who acts with the grace of God on your behalf. So we can use technology and all these things. But I will say the best, most ideal context for confession is in person. You know, it's in, maybe it's in a discipleship group where you can speak to each other. Or it's one-on-one where you can interact and even embrace each other you know, but obviously there's other ways to do it. Whatever we do, I think it's important that we do it. I've created, there's another one too, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. So these are worksheets to help you to work through these teachings in your life. One is serving, then there's submitting, there's confession, and listening to guidance. It's the one that we didn't really talk about today, which is humbly receiving guidance. Um, I try to make these really simple where it's not like you have to like cut off your right arm in order to start, right? It's like I I tried to put the cookies on the low shelf and say, what's one thing you can do? And so these are designed to be really simple and actionable, not like, you know, not like a dissertation for your PhD or something. So I just want to encourage you don't overanalyze these. Go ahead and do them. Don't wait. Um, they're, they're not too difficult. And so I wanted to just leave us a few minutes. We've got five minutes here at the end. And I just wanted to first say thank you for letting me be part of this journey with you. I think this is a really personal thing, spiritual formation. Um, and it's been a lot of fun for me. Um, I've felt energized by the Lord. I felt... I felt God at work as I've done this, and I hope that it's benefited you. I know from some of you that it has, but I want to leave just a little time for any questions or comments about today or, or kind of the, the process or any of the classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Jim's question is, it's a little cloudy about submitting to uh, the governmental authorities, but not necessarily a specific person. Here, it is, it is hard to grasp, but I think the nuance is important. Um, because, so first I'll say is that the governmental authorities are instantiated in individuals. What that means is there's a general principle of government authority that God has instituted, and that becomes reality in an instant, in a certain circumstance. But it doesn't mean that everything that person does is an exercise of God's governing authority. For example, genocide. And so if hitler for example who was a governing authority you know tells you to do that you don't (laughs) you know um so that that's kind of what i'll say does that make better sense yeah it's something to work out and maybe even discuss um the reason it's important is for my explanation it's like there's certain things that they will say that is not for our good remember romans 13 says it's for your good right the context of Romans 13, by the way, is not trying to say, and then you should be a part of the government. And there's a place for there can not be a place for that too. It's not saying, so you should join because everything they do is right. In Romans, it's saying, don't rebel against the authorities because they'll kill you. I mean, they would use the sword for a reason. So the context is really important. It's not trying to create a holistic theology of government. It's trying to say like, Hey, don't do that, cause like, that's just kind of how society works. Any other comments or questions? That's awesome. That was helpful. Yeah, you're welcome, man. So Dave was saying, just making this actionable and based on scripture, where it's like taking the mystery out of spiritual formation. And I'm really happy to hear that, cause man, it isn't that good. It's like I don't have to just sort of float, <laughs> like, and wonder. And just hope it's gonna happen. Yeah, and just hope it's gonna happen. That's awesome, man. Well. Thank you again, and um, that's it. See you guys.